Open God's holy word, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be on verses 15 through 18. We'll be reading verses 10 through 18. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one adds to it. Uh, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray. Sovereign Lord, speak to we sinners as you did to Abraham, your promise and power such that we would believe, even as your saints gathered here today, that we would persist in faith in your promise. Assured that it's fully ours, not by our works, but by Christ. His name, Amen. Paul now changes his tack in a couple of different ways. Most obviously, instead of, instead of addressing them as foolish Galatians, as he did at the beginning of chapter 1, he again refers to them as Brothers, verse 15, give a human example, brothers. He calls them fools only once in this letter, and brothers, nine times. That's a pretty good ratio to keep in mind when rebuking a brother. When rebuking a brother, you should neither pull your punches, nor flail wildly, 
without reserve or without reprieve. Call it like it is and call it like you hope it will be. Address the folly and address them as a brother, even whenever such deadly, soul-damning heresy is at play, initially address the one at fault as a brother in hopes of repentance. And they're proving to be a brother. Paul does here. When naming sin, don't fail to name a brother as a brother. But all that's peripheral to Paul's point. And so that, though that's the more obvious change that happens here, it's not the most important one. The more important one's more subtle. It, it's, it's easy to miss. Paul is still arguing for the same singular and central truth concerning the gospel, justification by faith alone. But whereas prior to this, his arguments have been first biographical, his own, but then they've, the, the ones that have come from the Scripture have been largely systematic or uh, exegetical. From this point on, we're going to see some biblical historical arguments for his point. And this is the line of attack that Paul's going to maintain all the way through chapter 5. Now, what's the difference here, though? What am I getting at? It's akin, but perhaps not identical, to the disciplines that we label as biblical theology and systematic theology. Now, biblical theology is a bit of a, a clumsy name because we want our systematic theology to be biblical. They're not independent upon one another. You can't really do the one without the other. They're necessarily involved in this way, and yet they can be distinguished. Whereas systematic theology will ask questions like, what does the Bible teach about the sovereignty of God? Or what does the Bible teach about the person of Christ? Or what does the Bible say about spiritual gifts? And then gathers all the relative information from the Bible and analyzes it and, and systematizes it. Biblical theology will look at the storyline of the Bible and ask how this particular story is to be understood in its place in the Scriptures and in relation to what's unfolded so far up to that point in relation to how the story itself is told and holds together and the themes and motifs that are there. And so, you need to do one to do the other well. But they can be distinguished. Systematic theology is more of a logical analysis of particular topics that we see in the Scriptures. Biblical theology is more of a historical understanding. It's something like the difference between arguing whether or not a particular character in a piece of fiction is good or evil, and what the plot line of the story is. So when you're arguing, is this person a good person or an evil person, you're going to gather all the evidence from that story and, and make your decision. That's like systematic theology. When you're speaking about the plot line of the story, that would be akin to biblical theology. So Paul is now dealing with the plot line that we see throughout the Scriptures and bringing it to bear upon this question of justification. Is it by works of law or hearing with faith? 
And that he's dealing with the plot line is evident by a few clues. First, he begins to speak a lot about covenant here. Covenant is the backbone of the Scriptures. It's what holds it all together. Michael Horton refers to covenant as the architecture of the Bible. So the plot of God's revelation of redemption that unfolds throughout the Scriptures unfolds through successive covenants. Second, Paul begins to pick up on various themes or motifs and draw them out towards their fulfillment in Christ. Whenever you want to talk about a plot line in a story, that's what you do. You look at some kind of theme or motif and how it develops through the story. Paul begins to do that. Third, finally, Paul begins to talk about chronology. Verse 17, 430 years later, he's, he's calling us for, to, to look at this part of the story and understand it, how it relates to another part of the story in its sequence, in its time. So before we dive into Galatians, just understanding this, let me remind you, this is why we say you have to read your Bible in order to read your Bible. You have to get the big plot line. You have to know how the little stories fit into the big stories. One major problem that we have with the Bible is that we don't even ever get into the little stories. We start with our little tiny story. And we read that into the Scriptures. We want to read the Bible in light of our tiny story rather than reading our tiny story in light of God's epic. We need to immerse ourselves into the world of the Scriptures and see God as He is, God as He spoke. And then, coming back to that, understanding that, try to see how our little story falls into the big one that God is telling. Paul begins here by arguing from the lesser to the greater, verse 15. Even a man-made covenant is not annulled or added to once it's been ratified. You see, because we irrefutably exist in God's story, this truism is inescapable to our conscience. A promise is a promise. Once you extend that promise, you're not free to alter the terms at your whim. Now, we live in an age where contracts are constantly renegotiated. But once the ink of your signature is dry, you're at the mercy of the other party whether or not they want to alter those terms. You've bound yourself in an agreement and you cannot go back on it freely. Something like that is what's being dealt with here, but we're not speaking simply of contracts. This is in reference to something far more solemn. Covenant. What is covenant? And that... Our answers are so often fumbled at such a question indicates that we're not really reading and understanding the Bible. 
What's covenant? So it's not the best technical definition, perhaps. I still find O. Palmer Robertson's the most poetic, the most potent, and the most satisfying. There is a way whenever artistic expression gets at truth better than just a bare, technically accurate statement. And so Robertson defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Now that needs unpacking. But I think you can instinctually get what covenant means automatically and you understand it. there's something that resonates with Robertson's definition so that you understand essentially what's being said there. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. And you just instinctually know that a covenant is a most serious and solemn kind of promise and oath and relationship, not one to be broken. (laughs) And you know this because of the one place where covenant necessarily remains intact in our culture. Unavoidably, covenant remains intact to our knowledge because of marriage. It's a covenant. And it's not something that man does. The state does not marry. The state may recognize a marriage. And it should recognize what a marriage is. And we live in a country that's currently rebelling against God by recognizing mirages instead of marriages. But she's not marrying anyone when she recognizes recognizes those as a marriage any more than calling a circle a square doesn't make that square doesn't calling a circle a square doesn't make that you're with me for that matter a minister of the church doesn't marry contra rome marriage is not a sacrament of the church The church was nowhere given authority to marry. Ministers may present a husband and wife. They may not, with the authority of the state of Oklahoma or the authority of God's church, pronounce someone man and wife. Not even the church marries. God recognizes that covenant made between them, and He joins them together. Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now the point of this little excursion has been this. You understand the seriousness of covenant relationships. It's one thing to fail to take out the trash as you promised you would to your wife. It's another thing to be unfaithful to the covenant that you made. The seriousness of covenants as we're to understand them biblically is seen in this, that covenants are not made, 
covenants are cut. Whenever you read in Genesis 15 that Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring I will give this land, the word that you have translated made is superiorly understood as God cut a covenant with Abraham. This even comes into our vernacular today whenever we speak of cutting a deal. If I have a a major beef with our English translations after their failure to translate the name of Yahweh as Yahweh instead of all caps LORD, a uh, office, not a name, if I, a, if I have a major beef after that, it's the failure to translate karat as cut instead of made. Covenants are cut. There's blood indicating the seriousness of the oaths that are being taken. The covenant made with Abraham unfolds through many chapters in the Bible. But it's no more clearly, no more dramatically seen than in that covenant ceremony that takes place in Genesis 15. Remember, God instructs Abraham to take the carcasses of various animals, split them in half, and lay the halves opposite one another. A deep sleep comes over Abraham. And he awakes to see a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch go between the pieces. This manifestation of God. Remember that Genesis was written not as these events unfold. It was written... After God has redeemed Himself and He's leading the people by a pillar of cloud fire. These are some manifestation. Moses is grasping for words, no doubt. To express what Abraham saw. God walks through the pieces. And the significance of what this means is clear. From Jeremiah 34.18 where God tells rebellious Judah the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. What was being expressed in such a covenant ceremony is that whenever the parties involved walked through those pieces, they were saying, so may it be to the one who violates covenant. May he be cursed. May he be rent asunder. May his blood be shed. When a covenant is cut, woe to those who break it. Whenever cut, covenants are cut between men, they're cut between, before God. Even if God isn't recognized, they are cut. They are made before God. How you relate to your neighbor is an expression of how you relate to God. Whether or not you want to recognize that. And whenever covenants are made between men, they're made before God. And in that sense, they're made between not just men, 
but also between you and God. And so of all the covenants that we see in Scripture, even those made between men, never do we see one of them annulled. We don't see any instance of them trying to go back and renegotiate the terms of the covenant. Whenever Abraham made that covenant with Abimelech, they didn't try to revise it at some later point. And so the argument here is that even with a man-made covenant, after it's made, it's not annulled. It's not added to. And God does not speak with less fidelity than men. When He cuts a covenant, He keeps it. He cuts covenants. He does not break covenants. When He swore covenant love to Abraham, He walked through the pieces alone, saying, I will keep both sides of this covenant even if it means a curse falling on God Himself. And for that covenant to be, Jesus would become flesh. And He would be rent asunder, cursed, so that we might be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. Understanding this, know, therefore, that God's promise has not been annulled. It has not been nullified. It has not been amended. The promise made to Abraham was not altered by the covenant made with Moses so that now, instead of just faith, you also have to do works. But all this might cause you to wonder. You're arguing that covenants aren't annulled. They aren't added to. And I understand you're saying that the Abrahamic covenant was not altered, but was not the Mosaic covenant altered? Does not that disprove this point? Ephesians 2.15 tells us that Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Hebrews 8.13 speaks of the new covenant making the first one obsolete. So, can covenants be annulled? How do the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants relate? First, you have to understand that the Mosaic covenant grows out of the soil of the Abrahamic covenant. Exodus opens this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What was the promise to Abraham? That his offspring would be as the stars of heaven. Exodus opens telling you of God's faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham. And then you come to chapter 2, and you read, 
God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So everything that unfolds in Exodus, including the Mosaic covenant, is growing out of the soil of the Abrahamic covenant. Second, understand that when we're told that Christ abolishes or makes the Old Covenant obsolete, He's abolishing and making it obsolete in a very particular way, which the context of Hebrews 8 and Ephesians 2 makes clear. Christ abolishes by fulfillment. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The gospel abolishes the law the way that the flower abolishes the bud. And so that we can say the law is abolished in one sense, it was never annulled, wasn't added to, amended, was fulfilled. But then, Paul argues that this promise was made to Christ in verse 16. Why does he do this? It does support the central thrust of this letter that we're justified by faith, that that the inheritance, that the blessings come by promise and not by law at all, supports that. But you notice there's this flow of argumentation, verse 15. To give in a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see the logical flow between verses 15 and 17. And in between there, you're told that the promise is made to Christ. What does this have to do with the argument? It's this. Christ is the proof. He's the demonstration that the promise was not annulled by the law which came 430 years afterward. Because whenever Christ is born, He's the one to whom the promise has been made. So the law that sits in between there does not change, hasn't changed anything regarding the promise made to Abraham. That's why he begins verse 17 saying, this is what I mean. Why am I talking about Christ? Because he demonstrates that the law which comes 430 years afterward does not alter the promise made to Abraham. And Paul bases all this on a word. Not just simply a word, but the particular form of that word, whether or not it's singular or plural. Verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. So in Genesis 13, 15, Yahweh promises Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring 
forever. This speaks volumes to the inspiration of the Scriptures. Notice how often Paul does this. You see Jesus do this. They will hang a whole argument. Not only on words, but the particular form of the words. Jesus fulfills every dot and iota. And it's texts like this that show you the cosmic significance of such dots and iotas. But some will object. Offspring is a collective singular. Like crowd, mob, group. That's true. And the Bible uses it. Even in this particular setting in that way. Genesis 17.8, Yahweh tells Abraham, I will give to you to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be there, God. It's true that offspring often does have reference to all the children of Abraham. But, it always does so in reference to the singular seed or offspring of Abraham. Whenever Abraham pleaded for Ishmael to be blessed in the place of the promised child not yet received, God told him, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Later God tells him, Genesis 21.12, Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So yeah, there's this this promised offspring, and yet it's to come through a promised offspring. There's this promised offspring that they will be as the number of the stars or as the sand of the coasts. But it's all going to be through the promised offspring singular. More to the point, offspring often does refer to a singular person. So Genesis 4.25, it refers to Seth. Remember in 1 Samuel 1.11, whenever you see Hannah praying for that son, again, another translation failure, the word for son there is seed or offspring, same word. She's praying for something much richer than simply a son. She's praying for offspring. She's praying in regards to God's covenant, you see. She's praying for an offspring. And then whenever God makes His covenant with David, He tells him, 2 Samuel 7.12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. Now in that instance, It's easy for us to understand how the opposite is happening with what we're seeing with Abraham. In the Davidic covenant, the offspring is clearly singular by the immediate context, and yet you understand it's going to to involve multiple offsprings. In Abraham, immediately you see offspring is plural. 
It involves a host. Yet also, it involves a single person through whom that great multitude will come to be. There's a broad sense of offspring in all these promises, but it's always through the narrow. If you step back and look at the big picture, you realize this is the way it continually is throughout God's story. After Adam sinned, the first instance of this same promise came in the form of a curse upon the serpent. I will put enmity between the woman, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And immediately in Genesis, you see two seeds. You see the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The whole structure of Genesis is comprised of genealogies that introduce each storyline. Most often, there are two of them. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. So you have Cain, and you have Seth. You have Ham, and you have Shem. Then you come to Abraham. You see that the blessing, the promised blessing is focused on one man. But then, you have Ishmael. You have Isaac. Then you have Jacob. Alongside Esau. And then more narrowly still, even within the people of God, you're told it's through Judah that a ruler will come. And then that he will be the son of David. You see, this broad understanding is always coming through. This narrow focus on looking for the singular offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the tension of the whole Abraham storyline, is it not? You're waiting for... A child. The promised child. The promises narrow to laser sharp precision on Christ. And in Christ, they find their true and greatest broadness involving the nations. Who is the true Israel? Those united to Christ. Who's the true, who are the true children of Abraham? Verse 7, is those of faith or the sons of Abraham. Faith in what? Christ. Every covenant promise, every covenant blessing finds its yes, its fulfillment, its amen in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. It is nowhere prescribed in the Bible to say in Jesus' name, except by implication in such texts. It is absolutely right to begin and say every bit of your prayers in Jesus' name. Because they find no answer anywhere else than in Him. Continues in 2 Corinthians. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
of every one of those promises. This is why Paul can tell the Ephesians, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were separated from Christ. His argument is not that that's all that's been rectified. You were separated from Christ. Having been brought near by the blood of Christ, you're not alienated from the commonwealth. The blessing of Israel. You're not strangers to the covenants of promise. Because you're united to Christ, in whom every one of them is yes, amen. So, conclusion is that the promise, as it's made to Christ, comes to fruition in Christ, demonstrates that the law which comes 430 years afterward, does not annul that promise to make it void. That's what the Judaizers want to argue. They want to argue that the Mosaic Covenant did amend the promise. They want to argue that the law alters the terms. What they want is not for the law to grow out of the soil of promise. They want the promise to grow out of the soil of the law. If you keep all the law, maybe a promise. You water your law. You fertilize your law. You keep your law well maintained. Maybe the promise will bloom out of that. So again, you see that the Judaizers are not simply perverting God's gospel. They're perverting God's law. The inheritance is not, never was, by law, because, verse 18, it is by promise. So far, Paul has repeatedly spoken of this in terms of blessing. This has been promised to Abraham. This promise made to Abraham. But now he uses a particular word that he hasn't yet. Inheritance. Whenever they heard this, they, the Jewish audience and any Gentile that's been taught anything of the Scriptures would instantly think dirt. Inheritance means land, an allotment that was given to a particular family from a particular clan, from a particular tribe that would be his and his offsprings forever. Now once this promise narrows in on Christ, that too becomes immeasurably broad. When you narrow in on Jesus, things get as big as the cosmos, as all creation. Instead of a land flowing with milk and honey, it's a new creation where Jesus 
will return to make His blessings flow far as the curse is bound because He bore the curse. And this renewed creation is the inheritance of the saints by promise. The promise reaches its fruition Christ. Romans 4. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. We are heirs as we are joint heirs, fellow heirs with the Christ with whom we're in union by faith. The inheritance promised in shadow to national ethnic Israel, which they failed to keep by works of the law, is granted to the true sons of Abraham by promise. And the Christ who kept the law for us and bore its curse in our place. So can you see why Bible promise books are so trite and silly. People go to them looking for some little promise to get them through some little trial. Whenever God by His covenant promises is telling us, I will get you through death. And on the other side, resurrection. All creation made new. Blessedness forevermore, where I am your God, and you are my people. The Bible promise books fail to understand that every promise is a diamond set within the ring of covenant. Too many are trying to wrest promises from the scripture that are not betrothed to them. If you want God's promises you must be wed to Christ by faith you cannot earn his love sinner believe in the promise of the gospel believe in the son of God Jesus Christ born a woman born under the law to be the righteousness of all who would trust in Him. Having borne away the wrath of God for their sins, their law-breaking on the cross, believe you will be put to union with Him by the Spirit in covenant love unfailing, immeasurable, unbreakable covenant love 
will be yours forevermore. Pray. Father, thank you for speaking such astounding words. Grant us faith. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.